Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. It's so odd to have two places to look. So I'm drawn to looking at the big place, but I look more straight at you if I look down to the camera. So um, I'm going to try. <laughs> so this morning, I'd like to um, talk about Buddha's robe, sewing Buddha's robe. And this is um, sort of, well, absolutely, because we were going to initiate sewing Buddha's robe again here. And Buddha's robe are the rakasu that we use once we've um, either taken the precepts and, um, or are in the precepts class and you've talked to a teacher about sewing a rakasu. So the idea was we would start this afternoon. And because of the change in the pandemic status, we're not going to do that. I hope that people that are interested in sewing rakasus will keep the faith and will do that at some point. And it could be possible that I'll be able to get online with people and show some stitching so people can practice stitching in the future. Um, so I wanted to start with a quote from, it's a koan that I find that right now is very uh, applicable for me that I really enjoy. And it's from Unman. So Unman is speaking to a student and says, the world is vast and wide. Why do you put on your robes when the bell rings? And I love that the big why in that koan. And I relate that koan to sewing, to rakasu in general. The world is vast and wide. There's so many things to do so many ways to be. Why this? Why rakasu? Why this process of sewing? And as I had sent out in one of the announcements about the sewing group, that is the rakasu koan for me. And I think it's really, really important, that inquiry. When you're thinking about rakasu at all, and you're considering sewing one or um, not considering sewing one. It's a practice that we have here at Appamata, and so it's a valuable field of inquiry. Um, I wanted to start with a little history, and this will be a quote from um, a transcription of a talk given by Vicki Austin, who's uh, a priest at San Francisco Zen Center. 
who's helping Hag and Flint um, progress on Flint's Dharma transmission. And this is supposedly a story about the beginning of the robe. Let's see. One of the Buddhist followers was named King Bimbasara. He was a disciple of the Buddha, and he accepted the Buddha as his teacher, and he was a lay disciple. One time he saw a monk that he thought was a Buddhist monk riding in the distance. He got off his horse and bowed all the way to the dusty ground. Then he approached the monk to ask for teaching, and to his horror, it wasn't a Buddhist monk. And he got mad and he stormed over to the Buddha. Lord, Buddha said, yes. King said, what gives with this? Your fathers don't have any recognizable way for me to recognize them. So I'm just bowing down to anybody. Would you please do something about this and give your disciples clothing by which I could recognize them? And the Buddha said, yes. So, and then there's more to the story that Ananda, Buddha's, um, I believe he was his cousin and disciple and um, close friend, um, agreed to make a robe that followed the design of a rice field, the rice paddies with the fields of rice and water and then the walkways and the the dams to keep the water in one field or the other. So long um, fields and some shorter fields and then walkways in between. So that is the story of the beginning of the Rakasu. So it's basically a branding thing. Um, people wanted to be able to identify who Buddhists were. Because, I mean, thinking of the context, the time and the place, there were lots of people wandering around in robes. There were lots of different kinds of monks. And so it made sense to say, okay, let's, let's make this distinguishable. Um, there's a long discussion in a part of Buddhist literature that talks about the rules for monastic life, the Vinaya that talks about what kind of cloth you should use and um, the monks coming to buddha at the beginning of making the robes and saying what should we use and he says pure cloth but by that he meant cloth that people threw away um, that there was no attachment to either for or against um, so there's a long list of types of cloth you can choose, cloth that's been chewed by cattle, cloth that's been used for menstrual rags, various other things. And so then the process of cleaning and dyeing and sewing together and making a robe is where the expression patched robes monks comes from. Um, let me read a little bit about that. I've got 
Sorry, I've got myself all color coded and it's, I don't think I color coded myself properly, but um, so the identification of a group, a member of a group is one reason for a rakasu um, in the beginning anyway, and certainly now. Other reasons for having a rakasu, um, it's considered a robe, it's considered Buddhist robe. So it is considered in the literature protection. There's a long piece in Dogen about all the merits of Buddha's robe. There's a, a piece called the Kesa Kodoku, which is the merit of the robe. And um, let's see, let me read that because it's pretty fantastic. All the things that a robe or a rakasu is supposed to do. So when I read this, um, just substitute rakasu for robe or Buddha's robe. Then the world honored one said in a verse, listen carefully, Janaparava. The great happiness field robe has 10 victorious qualities. While worldly clothes increase defilement, the Dharma robe of the Tathagata does not. The Dharma robe provides modesty, completes repentance, and creates the rice field of happiness. It protects you from cold, heat, and poisonous creatures, and strengthens your way-seeking mind for attaining ultimate understanding. Manifesting the form of a mendicant home lever, it frees people from greed and desire cuts off five wrong views and helps you to hold correct practice. By receiving and bowing to the sacred banner, Kashaya, you will have the happiness of King Brahman. When a Buddha child wears the Kashaya, a vision of stupa arises, creating happiness, eliminating unwholesomeness, and joining humans and devas. The noble form of the Kashaya arouses respect in a true seeker who is free from worldly dust. All Buddhas praise it as an excellent field and most beneficial to sentient beings. The inconceivable miraculous power of the Kashaya nurtures practice for enlightenment. The sprout of practice grows in the spring field. The splendid fruit of enlightenment is like a harvest in autumn. The Kashaya is true armor, impenetrable as diamond. The deadly arrows of delusion cannot pierce it. I have now recited the 10 excellent merits of the Kashaya. For eons, more comments could be made about it, but I'll say this. A dragon who wears even a shred of the Kashaya can't be devoured by a gold-winged Garuda. A person who holds a Kashaya while crossing the ocean will not fear dragons, fish, or harmful beings. Lightning and thunder, heaven's wrath, will not frighten a monk who wears a kashaya. When a person carries kashaya with respect, no evil spirits draw near. When one arouses the beginner's mind, leaves home and worldly affairs to practice the way, demon palaces and the 10 directions will tremble and such a person will immediately recognize the Buddha King's body. So that's a little long, but I was struck by all the wonderful things that this robe is gonna do 
So um, Dogen really venerated this. There's a story of Dogen going to um, China from Japan and seeing for the first time and sitting where the monks put the, the rakasu or the robe on their head and said the robe chant. And he was just carried away with how beautiful that was and how awful it was that nobody in Japan had seen this. And so he was very um, respectful and effusive about the road. Um, so one of the downsides of the, the branding is something that I'm hoping we can talk about in small groups later on, but it's that when you brand something and you make someone part of a particular group, it invites assumptions and expectations, um, both in the person who's wearing the thing and the people who are seeing the person wear the thing. And that was a big discussion at Appamata before we started sewing Rakasu that we considered for quite a while whether it would be something that would be distancing for people. Um, and the literature talks about this quite a bit of seeing the Rakasu or the robe as something that creates humility and doesn't invite envy and is not luxurious or beautiful, but is made of this cloth that has no attachment to it. And then is dyed a kind of dull color. Um, so the idea of being attached to having a rakasu or having a particular idea about what it creates in you or in someone else has been a problem has been a, uh, people have been aware of that possibility for a long time. Um, there's a quote in the transcription that I read from earlier from Blanche Hartman about someone asks her when she wears her rakasu and she says, well, here in the United States, um, I'm very careful because it creates distance people here don't understand what a rakasu is and um, it doesn't let me interact with them and them interact with me in a natural way. She said, in Japan, I wear it all the time. It's like shaving my head. Here I don't, in the United States, I don't necessarily shave my head all the time because it makes me so different than everybody else. But in Japan, I shave it all the time. So, again, the awareness that this thing that someone makes, makes a change. It's, it's, um, it's an action and it has repercussions, is important. Um, another way of looking at a rakasu is, comes from Suzuki Roshi. The proper understanding of our zazen or rakasu is the same, not different. Proper understanding of zazen is, at the same time, 
proper understanding of rakasu. So unless you have real experience of zazen, zazen experience, rakasu is not actually rakasu. It's just something which you wear. It is not dharma itself. So over and over again in the literature about rakasu and about robes, the writers talk about how the rakasu is the Buddha's body, um, is the Dharma body. And when you put it on, you are Buddha. But it's also not something separate from you. It's a wonderful Zen paradox that I'm so fond of. Um, you always have it. It's always with you. There's a story about um, the third patriarch in India who, when he was born, had a robe. And it wasn't like the traditional Buddhist robes, but um, the Buddha saw it and thought, okay, what kind of robe is this? Is it made out of leather? Is it made out of silk? But then when he became part of the Sangha, that became his robe. So the idea to me in that story being that it's not something you're ever without. Um, that whether you have it on or whether it's sitting on a shelf somewhere that you still have a robe, um, a formless field of benefaction as the, the robe chant says. Um, I did have a really nice quote from one of the more well-known Rakasu scholars or robe scholars who was a sewing teacher, Tomoe Katagiri, who was Katagiri Roshi's wife, who was a great Rakasu sewer. And she talks about we should understand the okesa, which is another word for robe, and so you can substitute rakasu, is the Buddha's body and Buddha's robe. Since the okesa stores the Buddha's pure teaching and the truth of life, it affects us in different ways according to the circumstances of time and place. It is different from the usual clothes that we wear in our daily life. It is universal. When we assimilate it, the okesa works upon us as Buddha Dharma, and we can accept an okesa as the Buddha's body, mind, and as a living teacher instead of understanding it through theoretical study. If it is said that we receive Buddha's teaching firmly believing that an okesa is Buddha nature and not just a piece of fabric, then when we put on okesa on your body, our eyes become Buddha's eyes, our ears become Buddha's ears, and our nose becomes Buddha's nose. We cannot understand this unless we throw away materialistic views of the okesa, which I thought was really beautiful thinking about when you take on this practice, when you, not just when you're wearing the rakasu, but you take on the practice, you take the precepts, you study the precepts, um, your eyes become Buddha's eyes, your nose becomes Buddha's nose. 
y dejando de So I wanted to speak a little bit about sewing, um, sewing Buddha's robe and some of the possible pitfalls that come in the practice of sewing. Um, because like the pitfall of making separation in a group, people that have this thing, people that don't have this thing, all the expectations about what this thing means, um, our judgments, our valuations. Um, this can happen with sewing uh, and absolutely happens with sewing. <laughs> that everyone wants to be a good sewer. Um, everybody wants to be a good Zen student and do it right. Um, and I had a quote from Suzuki Roshi about that. Um, and he's talking about how there was a time in Japan when the people that sewed robes or rakasu were very wealthy and they had the time to do it and the, and the supplies. And so they got to a point where they would take a stitch and then they would get up and bow three times and recite a mantra. And then they would sit down again and take a stitch and do the same thing over and over again. So it became this, arduous practice um, and he says because of that buddhists were lost in their practice because it was too aristocratic practice even though you gather old material and spend you know a lot of time on each stitch when you make one stitch they bow many times and took up the needle and you know the sewing will case a stitch by stitch that way it was a good practice they thought, but because of that, Buddhists were lost. So you shouldn't be lost in that kind of practice. You feel very good. You feel that you are very devotional, good student, and that as you're feeling. Do you understand? So we must see what we are doing, you know, from various angles. We must feel the crisis of the world, you know, by your skin then you are not Buddhist, okay? To be, you know, to feel resistance to the old culture is, I agree with that, but do not be lost from this world. It is a terrible mistake. So from that quote, I take it, I take a lot of things, but I take it to mean he's warning people against seeing themselves as a good student, seeing practice as a way to shine or seeing your sewing practice as a way to make you better, a way to make you different than other people. Um, the work of the sewing, the actual practice of the sewing, um, I can read you a quote from Suzuki Roshi about that, about becoming one with your practice. This morning I said you should, you know, concentrate on every stitch, you know, every stitch as you are connected, as you are concentrated on your breath. Concentration, we say, 
but that is not actual point. Actual point, real point, is to become one with what you do, to become one with your practice. So anyway, you know, in your practice, you should try to be concentrated on each stitch, on each stitch, and someday you will understand what it means, not immediately. <laughs> yeah, so he has hope for us in sewing. So to end our um, my talk, I wanted to say the rope chant one time and just to think about it, to think about what it means, this robe of liberation. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction, wearing the universal teaching. <clears throat> I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. So this is a, a wonderful intention. So I'd like to take a little time to be in breakout groups. And I think two persons, two people per group. And it's 10.25. Oh, Robin wants to see a rakasu. So this is the rakasu. You can see that it's a definite pattern that you could imagine if you'd ever seen a rice field with patties, might be something like this with paths and fields. And then the back of a rakasu is individualized. And this has got my name on it. And this silk, white silk panel is something that your teacher paints on ink on the white silk and paints your Buddhist name, which you receive when you go through Jukai, which is the ceremony of receiving the precepts. Um, and many sanghas give the rakasu, people have sung their rakasu during the process of uh, learning about the precepts and they give people their rakasu at Jukai, at the ceremony of receiving precepts. So it's got my American name and it's got my Buddhist name, which is Kori, which means boundless truth. And it's got the date and it's got pegs chopped on it. So um, let's see, 1027, let's just go to um, ten forty. And each person I would recommend take some time, maybe two or three minutes to talk about what Arakasu seeing a rakasu, considering sewing one, um, listening to the talk, thinking about other people wearing rakasu, what that evokes in you, what comes up. <clears throat> 
um, and then the other person take the turn and talk maybe two minutes and then talk together for eight minutes or so. And then we'll come back and share what we found in the small group. So we're ready. Great, I think we're all back. So yeah, I'd love to hear from people about what their thoughts and um, ideas about Rakasu and about um, what they mean and what they evoke. Participants, you, uh, I was going to say participants because it says it on here, but yeah, you can all unmute yourselves if you wish to speak. Joan, we can't hear you. There you go. That did it. Well, we got off because we were with Maria and we really talked about her serious family situation. But then at the end, I, all I can say is that I have a lot of respect for the process now and I didn't before. And I have felt from the beginning, I wasn't gonna do it. I probably won't be able to do it. Um, my hands are so bad that I can't do it. <laughs> I guess it doesn't matter, your stitches aren't good, but anyway, I don't believe I'll be able to do it, but I really respect it now. Well, there's a long tradition of people that either because their eyesight or their fingers or their cognition is not up to snuff or not able to, to produce rakasu for somebody else to sew for you. Mm. Yeah, mm. that's always a possibility. Yeah. It's nice to think about that, yeah. Thank you. I appreciated the history um, and all the history uh, that you presented. I feel like I have to listen to the talk again because there was so much there. Um, you know, because I say the chant quite a bit, but I, I don't know what I'm saying. Like, what is this robe? Um, and then in our group, I really enjoyed um, Robin's feedback of what it's like to actually sew the robe, you know, so you, you mix this history and then someone who's gone through the process. Um, it's really enriching. Um, I wanted to just say, Joan, um, I know that one element of um, having someone sew Rakasu is for you to ask. And so that will maybe be your practice is to ask um, Anne or one of the interested teachers, um, would someone sew me a rakasu? Um, I know that any number of people would be happy to do so, but that practice of asking um, is a big one. The other thing I wanted to mention was, I know when Anne and I sewed, um, one of our um, sort of Dharma classmates Sisters, um, Jenny, um, I'm blanking on Jenny's last name. Anyway, she's, pardon? Prentice. Prentice, yeah. She um, uh, later had cancer and she's since died, but she um, 
you know, we were sewing along and um, she was missing at least one um, finger and it never really came up, but there were certain things that she would kind of, you could tell she was getting a little bit frustrated. And I think it took months before I noticed that she didn't have a full, you know, set of digits. And so it is remarkable what humans can do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and there's definitely a special bond, I think, that that is created between people that sit in a sewing room. And I didn't really talk about this, but the sewing is really considered a practice. It's considered a well, not a type of zazen, but definitely a meditative practice. And it um the first hour of an hour and a half sewing session is silent. And there's a there's a little um, gata or a little chant that you do with each stitch. Luckily now you don't have to get up and bow three times with every stitch, but there is a little there is a little chant. Yeah, there's something for me in the um, when I was talking to the two Jones <laughs> was um, about the how it so in the Rakasu is like a microcosm of the practice. It's like that is the practice the each stitch, each moment, each step, each part of the process. It, it's that mindful attention to everything and to to do it wholeheartedly and and the more the practice kind of infiltrates my life, the more I can sort of feel and understand the rakasu, the, the process of how that, that process is, is, is the practice, it is entirely the practice. And then you take that and, and you and that moves outwards. It's that slowing down that every moment, that every step, and then you take that out into the world. And then back, you know, there's no difference. There's no differentiation between the rakasu, the process of, and the practice. It's it's the same. Or that that's how I'm understanding it. If, yeah. So that's thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I definitely saw it that way. Uh, with that, what Maria was saying, uh, we got to choose the thread, the color of thread, and I chose the yellow one. Uh, because I was dealing with perfectionism and I wanted to be able to see all my mistakes, that I couldn't hide my mistakes and I had to deal with that. And uh, I found, I was very surprised with the hour up. Uh, you're not gonna be able to hear me. Can you hear me? Can you hear me now? Uh, with the hour that we spent, uh, okay, great. With the hour that we spent in silence, oh, and our chant was the English that we did not say was, I plunged my life into the heart, into Buddha. Is that right, Anne? Yeah, it's, it's like I plunged my life into Buddha or something like that. It was just a beautiful thought. And we do it for an hour and then we'd have 30 minutes that we could talk. And I would find that I had no need to talk. Yeah. And 
and that I had no need to talk. It was just the the wonderful calmness of being with others working. It was lovely. Yeah. So is if like given that the the idea of people gathering together in Austin didn't work out, is there some plan to, to make it a shared time? Because that makes sense to me in a way that just making one for myself doesn't work at all for me, which is that when I think, when I was listening to the talk and thinking about it and thinking of some of the other thoughts I've had before in relationship to it, it seemed odd to me given how much the robe of liberation means to me to put it in a little diminished symbol just didn't quite make sense to me. Whereas the process of, of doing it, just as each thing in my practice has, has been, is each, each thing, even though it seems like a little thing on the side or something like that, is what I'm stretching with. And, and so I would probably like it now that you've described the process of doing it together in a way that I would have said, Nah, I'm not going to have one. Maybe I'll paint one if I want to or something. And I also, I mean, I haven't been able to use my arthritic hands for sewing for about 20 years now. And so, and yet as you're talking, I'm going like, well, so what if the little edges are falling out the side and so on? This is my life now. I'm doing that on so many other fronts. Why not take that opportunity too? So thank you. Yeah, there's definitely an idea to, to do it hybridly. Um, I'm having to figure that out. I'm waiting for Kim to get back into town <laughs> to help me. So, but yeah, I got, a, I got a little stand for my phone so I can you know, have the big group and then have a more close view of things because it's very complicated. I think it's time to do service. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and um, do that. So thank you all so much for engaging in this and engaging in the questions and the inquiry. It gets very rich. <laughs>